0: You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Bear with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat.
0: Simone, you know, we ended last week's episode saying that there would be no shortage of things that are happening on the coast, and we'll have a lot of news and developments to talk about in the weeks and months ahead, and, and we did not lie. We've got some big... <laughs> Uh, news and big things to talk about today, um, you know, the Mid-Breton sediment diversion, um, a project on Louisiana's coastal master plan is moving forward into the scoping process. So we have some guests on that will help us um, demystify what scoping is and how people can get involved so that they can have their questions answered and provide comments to the, the folks who are moving this pro- project forward.
1: You're right, Jacques. There um, usually seems to be a public meeting um, every week sometimes in coastal Louisiana, and that's going to look a little different uh, in considering the times that we're in, but that makes this project no less important and people's feedback no less important to this process. So uh, we, if you remember, we did this on episode twenty. 20 when we were just little podcast babies, um, and we talked about, uh, we were, and then we were talking about mid So we thought it was a good time to bring it back up again to talk about the project specifically, but also talk about this, what is a scoping process. So uh, we'll just bring them on. Our first guest today, we are pleased to have Jeff Farisco, who's a senior project manager at the United States Army Corps of Engineer in the New Orleans district over on Leak Avenue. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
2: Hey, Simone, Jacques. Thanks for having me on.
1: Um, so you're a new guest. So welcome to the show. We've we've put uh, Brad Inman through the ringer and hopefully we'll have uh, Brad Labord join us a little bit too in this conversation. But you're a new guy to the show. So welcome.
2: Thank you. I, uh, it was Brad Inman that sent me on here. So uh, thanks to him as well.
1: Oh, so he either, that's either a ringing endorsement or he punted us because <laughs> he didn't want to have to deal with us. Huh?
2: <laughs> Let's go with the former. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I promise you no trick questions, no matter what Brad says. Um, and we do want to talk about specifics, um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about your role over at the Corps of Engineers?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so I'm a New Orleans native. I grew up uh, in New Orleans. I went to UNO uh, and then I've been working for the Corps for about 11 years And as you said, I'm a senior project manager, so I oversee a a number of things, obviously the diversions, which is why you have me on. But I also work on the Mississippi River levees and a lot of our outreach work that we do, like planning assistance to the states, uh, floodplain management services and silver jackets. Uh, So a lot lot of things that have to do with uh, flood risk management, but uh, I've also dabbled a lot in ecosystem restoration.
1: Very good, very good. That's what I remember meeting you at a Coastal Connections over at Ryan Lambert's place. I think that was the first time I got to meet you in person.
2: That's right. Good memory.
0: So, Jeff, things must be a little calmer over at Leak Avenue now that we're finally not
2: in flood stage. How are things going since the river has gone down? It's good. Thanks for asking, Jacques. Uh, yeah, we're, we're glad to be out of it. It was a long flood season, uh, but we're now actually we're getting back to work. Uh, I don't know if you guys recognize, but, uh, you know, a lot of business halts when the, the water is up, including the core zone work. So a lot of my construction projects are resuming right now. So that's, it's all good news. We're glad the water is down uh, and it's back to business as usual, uh, albeit obviously in a different environment with COVID. Well,
0: kudos to you all. I know it was a very long flood fight and you, you know, did a lot of great work during that time to, you know, help us not even have to think about the risks that were out there. Um, so. Uh, Yeah, I mean, hopefully you can all get a little bit of a break from that, but good to hear that you're able to get back to work on some key projects.
2: No problem. Thank you.
1: We're going to have to bring you on the show in the future to talk about silver jackets, too, and some other fun projects that, well, y'all, I don't know if you think it's fun, but it's it's interesting <laughs> work that, <laughs> that I'm not sure the community's fully aware of of all of your roles, right? So we talk about you or about the core, right? In ter- We talk about you too, Jeff, by the way, but um, <laughs> in terms of uh, big, big projects, right? These massive projects like these sediment diversions or things like flood fights, right? But we, we will have to have you on to talk about silver jackets in a little bit, but let's talk about Mid-Breton, right? So Mid-Breton is different than mid Barataria. So tell us about Mid-Breton and where it's located and what um, impact area that will be.
2: Sure. So it's on the uh, the east bank of the Mississippi River below Carnarvon, uh, where it's right around what's called Wills Point. But uh, if you know where the Carnarvon Diversion Structure is, it's a few miles downriver from there. Uh, it is uh, similar to mid Barataria in the, the scope and the size Uh, It's about 75,000 K CFS. And I like to, since, you know, people, when you hear that number, it, it could mean anything, right? So the way I like to put it in perspective is that's about the, if it's constructed and built would be the 10th largest river in the United States at max capacity.
1: So, but that doesn't just stay open all the time, right? And, and we can talk about some operations and, and if people have questions like that, where they can be directed to. So, when we talk about this um, process, right? So, this is really a CPRA project or the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority of Louisiana um, and that y'all are part of this process, how?
2: Right. Yeah, so you're correct. It is not a uh, Army Corps of Engineers project. It's a permit application to the Army Corps of Engineers by CPRA, as you said. So that's correct. So the way that USACE is involved in it, uh, it it gets a little detailed here, but uh, certainly if folks look at the scoping documents, and I know we'll hit that later in the talk here, but... uh, you know, we have some, some primary missions uh, and responsibilities under our regulatory authority. One is section 10, which is navigation or navigable waters, uh, section 404, which is our jurisdiction over wetlands. And then the one that I actually am responsible for in, in this, this multi-package is the section 408 permissions, uh, which is essentially uh, authorized projects that have been built by the Corps of Engineers. So uh, we are the lead federal agency on this. And uh, that is how we tie into it. We are in a regulatory role uh, and we'll be essentially reviewing the state's permit application and uh, developing an environmental impact statement.
0: So Jeff, um, 408 permit, that might sound a little technical for some of our listeners. So um, break down for us you know, what that is and, and how that relates to um, what the state is seeking to do with the Mid-Breton sediment diversion.
2: Sure. Yes. And I agree. It, it definitely, the first time I heard it, I was like, what does that mean? You know, like section 408. Well, first of all, like just at a basic level, that is a reference to the the law and the statute that it comes from section 408 of, of a WERDA, right? A Water Resource Development Act. So, but that's not what it is, right? That's just the reference to what it represents. And what it represents is, is uh, if we think about Mid-Breton and what it's going to do, um, the way that the state has come in with their application is that it is going to go into the Mississippi River levees, which are levees that the Corps built. So they're federally authorized features of the Mississippi River and tributary system. And so CPRA can build something on our levees, but section 408 requires them to seek permission from the Corps to do that. And there's, there's a few things in the 408 that we're looking for uh, the permission for the state to do that. They, we, they cannot jeopardize life and safety. That's paramount to the Corps of Engineers. So, uh, if they put that, if they put the diversion in, they have to maintain the Mississippi River and tributaries. So the diversion still has to be able to pass the the flood that is coming down the Mississippi River levee. That diversion cannot be a weak point. It has to still be part of the MRT system. Uh, so that is kind of like at a very high level what the core on my side of the shop. It's not all the the Section Ten Four Hundred Four stuff. On the 408 side, it's it's purely about ensuring that the federal project is protected.
1: So that was a really great explanation. That makes it um, easy to understand, you know, if if it's okay if uh, and this is like hypothetical, right? That it is okay for the core to um to change the Mississippi River levy system, but you have to keep it as is and there can be no danger. So I, I think that's pretty clear. So so where where do things like compensatory mitigation or like big scrabble words like that, where does that come into play? Um is the core's role through this process?
2: You know, I I don't know if it's called a lifeline or not, but it really, since we do have Brad Laborde with us, maybe it's it's time to bring him in. I, I think he'll do it Own more friends. justice than I would. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Brad Laborde, welcome to the show. Brad is the regulatory manager over at the uh, Corps of Engineers on Leak Avenue. So Brad, here you go. Lifeline, Scrabble words, compensatory mitigation. Spell it, use it in a sentence, and tell us what it is.
3: Okay, Yeah, and thanks for having me on. So compensatory mitigation is a requirement on the Section 404 of the Clean Water Act side, and basically its purpose is to offset any project's unavoidable impacts to jurisdictional wetlands. So if we have a third party that wants to either um, excavate or fill in um, our nation's wetlands, then we uh, request that that applicant first demonstrate that Proper steps have been taken to avoid and minimize adverse impacts, and then any remaining impacts would then require compensatory mitigation, and that could be either purchasing credits at a wetlands mitigation bank or selecting an agreed-upon site that um, some level of restoration would take place.
1: So, so this is a little off script, I guess, Brad. But but some projects mitigate themselves, or they have, you know, they do they. Like the work that we do, right? they're they're restoring something, right? So does that count?
3: They do. typically, um, coastal restoration projects, um, the any impact that would take place would be offset by their benefits. and that's one of the things that we'll be examining uh, as part of the mid Midbreton uh, sediment diversion EIS.
1: <laughs> you had to pick two B words. Is that how that? <laughs> okay. right. They are I... named after basins, but it's like a, it's like Section four oh eight. It's like a mental exercise to try to keep that straight. You okay? So you also just mentioned Clean Water Act. Jeff previously had mentioned the Water Resources Development Act. These are all pieces of federal legislation. But there is also something called NEPA, right? So tell us about NEPA and the role that it plays in this process, just so we can keep our acronyms and federal legislation straight.
3: Sure. So you could probably teach a graduate-level class on on NEPA. But just to be, I guess, high-level, the NEPA process and documents, and in this case, we're doing an environmental impact statement for Mid-Breton. Um, it serves as our evaluation and decision-making tool for both Section 10 and 404 and Section 408 uh, within the Corps. Um, so what we do is we'll develop a draft EIS that will then go out for uh, for comment, and then we'll develop a final EIS. But the, the end goal is that we'll have a EIS document that's not only available for the Corps to make their decision um, off of, but... Also, any um, additional federal uh, law or regulation, uh, they can use the EIS as well to uh, form their uh, their decisions.
0: So I have to ask, um, what is an EIS and why is it kind of important to the overall project and, and whether the project moves forward or not?
3: So NEPA has different avenues that um, we in regulatory can take to make our decisions, um, and it's based off the level of impact. If you have a low level of impacts, we can do an environmental assessment, which is a smaller document um, for projects that could alter an entire basin or a portion of a basin like a, a sediment diversion could. Um, We do the larger document, which is uh, the Environmental Impact Statement, which will go deeper into all of the beneficial and adverse impacts associated with um, that action.
1: So, during this whole process, and this is for either you, Jeff or or Brad, whoever wants to jump in, um, if Jeff's still still awake over there, I'm just kidding. hair <laughs> um,
2: <I'm> hair. <here>, <laughs> you're
1: just gonna keep kicking it to Brad. but you, the core, the, the regulatory staff, this whole process is neutral, right? I mean, you're not you, you're just neutral and you're making the best decisions off the best available science information that you have available during the permit reviews.
3: That's correct with all of our permit reviews we um we aim to remain impartial and neutral with our reviews. If you go through the process, answer all of our questions, then it's likely that we will be able to move forward with whatever it is you're requesting
1: so so Jacques mentioned the well, asked about the e i s so we're clear about that so you're looking for information on um you know what kind of information you could add about the project. You're also looking at alternatives, potential environmental issues that need to be considered. All that goes into the EIS, correct?
3: That's correct.
1: So, so, what happened? Oh, go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, being that we're in a regulatory role, we do have a lot of questions for um the applicant and In this case, CPRA is providing a number of um, technical documents as well as um, different models to demonstrate that their project will be both effective and the least damaging alternative.
0: And so um, that, I mean, to a certain extent, that's where scoping comes in, right? Because you all are going out to the public and kind of getting questions and comments from the public. So tell us how scoping fits into the overall process Um, for the development of the environmental impact statement and why people um, it's important that people engage in that process.
3: That's correct. So to build off of what I've already said, we we're getting a lot of material from the applicant. So on the flip side, we're also going to the public um, to garner, you know, the, the things that they feel are important with this project. So it almost serves as kind of a balance. You have the, the applicant that is certainly for the project and wants to proceed with it. And you have the core who's looking at it objectively. And then we're going to the public to say, hey, what's important to you? And what do we need to look at in the development of our EIS?
1: So, Brad, I mean, we live in this new world now, right? So, so have you faced any challenges regarding outreach? I, I know you're doing them virtually, right? And so, so you know, how have y'all addressed challenges and, and how are you, are you using technology and other methods to your advantage?
3: So, yeah, and I don't know if Jeff, he may want to elaborate on this as well, but um, we were in the process of developing a a, um, a public involvement plan and we did have to shift um in light of the uh, COVID pandemic we find them so ourselves in. So um, what we did, and it's typical with all uh, scoping processes through regulatory, is we published um, ads in the Advocate, the Biloxi Sun-Herald, the Jumbalaya News, and the Saigon No, um, notifying the public of the Mid-Breton sediment diversion comment period, and also the virtual scoping meetings that we have planned um, so we also have a Mid-Breton mailing list, which means anyone who has participated either in the Mid-Barataria sediment diversion scoping meetings, or if you've ever participated in a CPRA coastal connection meetings, you're on a list that um, we took our July second special public notice and sent that out to all of those folks and. Um, we did go back and forth on whether or not we should provide paper um, presentations or some type of, you know, outlet to provide those to people. But being that it's a lot of work involved and we're in a time crunch, we just decided that if folks do want copies of the scope of meeting presentation, then they can certainly uh, mail or call either Jeff or myself and we will um, send those out to the requester.
1: Yeah, you know, we we obviously uh, have challenges in the work that we do on our side about, you know, how, how do we use technology? So uh, definitely kudos to you to, I know that you have to publish it, but to, to go to the different um, papers to use that. And certainly um, I want to thank you for making accommodations to increase language access, um, you know, Spanish, English, and Vietnamese. I know that y'all had the video um, and I noticed that uh, somebody used LSU Gold. Purple to reference a few things, so they know where you come from. That's fine. I think that's a speaking South Louisiana's language, um, and and obviously, you know, hopefully, podcasts like this and and using NGO organizations like ourselves, we want to be able to help you as well. Um, just get the word out about this process. For us, it's it's so much about just letting folks know um, they can be a part of this process and helping them to understand it. So the the dead, the deadline to submit comments is is not until a little ways off. Correct?
3: Right. It's August 16th, uh, 2020. And just to go back a little bit, I mean, in the old way that we did this, we would have maybe two or three scoping meetings where it would offer the public um, two to three hours to come and, you know, speak with us. Um, but the the online platform is a bit of a benefit because we can get that information out um, it's available to anyone who has internet access that, you know, can go and listen to our presentations on the Mid-Breton uh, core webpage um, at their leisure. So you're not, you're not restricted to just going to one of three meetings. You can interact with us um, throughout the, the scoping period.
0: I know you all have a webpage, kind of like a hub page that has a number of resources, including Um, information about the projects, how people can give comments, um, ask questions and more. So where can people go online to access a lot of that great information?
3: So I'm not going to spell out the, the page to you, but it's, Why? it's going to be, it's, it's,
0: only 10 <laughs> it's, words. it's,
3: it's very be. long. It's very long. <laughs> if we, if you we just can always link to it too, in
0: our episode. Um, so right. if folks go to the episode um, description, we'll make sure to provide a link to that
2: resource. Cause
0: I know there's so much good content and information on that page. I want to make sure people have access to it.
2: Yeah, Jacques, if I may, I double checked today before uh, I came on and, you know, I I did a search and if in any search bar, I I tried about three of them. So I feel pretty confident in this, but Google the big ones, it'll work. If you just type mid-Breton sediment diversion EIS, that first link will be the regulatory page for the Corps of Engineers. And that's where, like, like we say, we've got graphics, we've got our presentations, we've got fact sheets, we've got all this very good information that would really greatly benefit Uh, the public. And I'll reiterate what what, uh, Brad was saying just a minute ago. There there is a benefit to having this available all the time because we recognize it's a significant investment by the public to come to a public meeting for an hour to three hours, however long that might last.
1: So even I know guys, uh, because I watched the videos, I would do go to the link. That's the Portal in which you submit comments too, right? So you can gather all your information. I can hear Brad talk about the project from his um, perspective, and then even CPRA's video, right, about their their perspective on the project. But that's really where you can go to submit the comments.
3: Yep, that's correct. And um, on one side of the page, I believe the left-hand side, we have all our graphics and there is a icon that you can select that will open up uh, an email that if you do have a project-related question, you can send that to us um, to help inform uh, the requester so that they um, can better, you know, provide their scoping comment. So, I just do want to point out that there is a difference there. there on one side, you can pr- uh, provide a question. And then on the right side, they have some information with how you can actually submit your official scoping comment, which could be done either by mail, email, or by telephone as well.
1: Oh, so we're going to miss those meetings where y'all can't answer the questions. And (laughs) those used to always be fun where it's like, no, the time to answer questions was earlier and and now I can't answer them now. So, um, but I do, I do. Definitely want to say again, I appreciate you kind of embracing the technology and and offering this a couple of different ways and, you know, and hopefully kind of rely on some friends and partners to get information out to those who, who may not have um, internet access. Um, so before you leave, though, you know, I think just to sum it up, both Jeff and Brad would love for you to answer this question. If you had to tell one thing to someone who thinks their opinion doesn't count in this process, what what would you tell them? What advice would you would you give to them? We'll start with Jeff.
2: Sure. I mean, I I would say that's definitely not true. Uh, in fact, you know, we take away a lot from these things. And while it wasn't on the diversions, I, I I know of a couple of comments that were made during public meetings in some of my civil works projects that had a direct effect on the the final selected alternative. It changed a significant portion of it based on public feedback and. It, it's true. It, it, you know it sounds like a, like a stereotype or you know whatnot that you know when we say or it's just some little sound bite that yeah, your voice matters, but it's really true because we hear that and, and to be able to, to take that feedback in, internalize it, uh, it, it can lead to something. So I would say anything is important and we're not the experts uh, in, in these communities uh, while we may be from around or near. The area we we haven't lived there all our lives, or may not have fished there all our lives, or whatever it is, and we're looking for that kind of that unique input that we're just not going to get from other sources. So, Brad,
3: yeah, just to add to that, I mean, Jeff, you summed it up well. But it's easy in this world to feel like you're not being heard, and you know, I feel that way sometimes. So, just just know that when you submit a comment, it at minimum I read it and we also put that into a scoping report that then feeds into the EIS. And we have to address all valid comments. I mean, if you, if you submit a comment that's calling us names, it's probably not going to show up in the EIS, but if you inform yourself either through um, looking at the material that we've provided or your, through your background and experiences, uh, whether it be working on the coast or just being an interested party in general um, that feedback, I mean, we, we, We greatly appreciate that and it will, you know, have some weight when we're considering um, impacts and how to discuss certain resources in the EIS.
1: So, um, Jeff, one more time, can you remind folks if they put what into the search bar, the page will come up. Just remind folks one more time where they can get information, even though we will include it in the show notes.
2: Uh, Yep. Just uh, one second. I had it written down here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I, I moved away from it, of course. So it's uh yeah. So mid M I D Breton sediment diversion, and then capital letters E I S, and it should be the first return. It'll be our uh, district regulatory page, and uh, everything should pop up right there as we discussed earlier.
3: Yes, so, and we and we do have our live events for people to participate in as well um, on the fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth of this right. month.
1: So Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we'll have some links to that information to people can listen live. Guys, uh, just quick question. After those presentations, people can still watch after the live events, right?
3: Yes, and the live events will be recorded and posted on our website. So if you miss one, you can, uh, it'll be available shortly after for you to access and at least hear the questions that uh, we answered during that session.
1: So it is a tradition of our show. I don't know if Brad Inman told you this, but we like to ask a fun question um, of our guests so we get to know them a little bit better personally. So um, Jacques and I have some usual standby questions, but I'm um, gonna we'll switch it up a little bit with his permission. So um, we've been without sports for a little while, and Brad, you did make an LSU reference. So question for both of you: We'll start with Brad first this time. What sport are you? What sport and team are you looking? forward to most coming back
3: well i do have a pelicans um face mask uh, around my neck right now so and they're going to start up here soon hopefully so i'll go with that for now and have i'm a season design
1: on this week too right huh
3: yep 20 <laughs> he's a big boy now
1: yeah yeah <laughs> jeff how about you
2: Yes, I mean, I'd agree with him. Uh, I'm desperate to see basketball again, but uh, actually, uh, my favorite to watch right now is actually ongoing, and that's Liverpool in the Premier League. So, and they just won the league, if you didn't already know that. So, it's been that. a good year.
1: Mm-hmm. I knew All that. All right.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad UNO, you did. I'm going
1: to say, I think UNO's got a decent baseball team, huh?
2: They do. They beat LSU on a regular.
1: Mm-hmm. Is Blake Dean still there? Now we're, now we're digressing over there, right?
2: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, I haven't seen any news on him for obvious reasons.
1: So. <laughs> well, guys, we cannot um, thank you enough for being on the show and taking the time um, using a different medium to discuss this, too, to, to go through some questions, um, both about the project and about the process itself. I'll let Jock close the show out.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, um, Brad and Jeff, and we'll you know be sure to share this out with folks so they know how they can engage um, in the scoping process until the end of the period, um, August sixteenth. So it is time for our Coastal Voice of the Week, um, and this week's Coastal Voice is from John in St. Bernard, Louisiana, and John says, "I support the coast because we need to keep our way of life." That's two in a row. Simone's short and sweet, but also really, really true and powerful. So. A reminder, you can go and submit your coastal voice at any point at org slash restore dash the dash coast, we might just read it on the air. And so we'll be back um, to talk a little bit more about NEPA and environmental review with our friends from the Environmental Law Institute. Stay tuned and we'll be back after the break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. I have the Coastal Stat of the Week. From the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana's Facebook page, alligator gar can grow up to more than 300 pounds and 10 feet long. They've existed since the crustaceous period, approximately 180 million years ago. There's a, a, a very funny Twitter, uh, well, he's a professor at Nichols who studies alligator gar, and he has a really funny Twitter account, um, Solomon David, I think is his name, and he makes alligator gar jokes like, dad jokes (laughs) but about alligator gars they're really funny so um if you're interested in that kind of thing he's the guy to follow but um talk about dinosaur stuff shock right
0: yeah that's well i was not aware of that and i'm immediately gonna go follow that twitter account (laughs) after this show um um, have you ever had alligator gar balls simone fried fried alligator gar
1: so I saw a show not that long ago about um, about eating alligator gar and because they're so meaty, I guess is the word. I don't know. Um, and so, uh, but that's interesting. Yeah, a good way to kind of use a a species, an ugly. They're kind of ugly. I feel bad for Yeah.
0: Them. I, I feel like I had it way back in the day. And I don't know. I remember it being pretty good, but, you know, anything fried, that's how we do in Louisiana can't be bad. So, yeah, right, right um, on. <laughs> well, we are continuing our important conversation about um, the mid breton scoping process. Um, we just had guests on from the Army Corps who talked to us about um, the process on their end and what to be expected as part of scoping, what is scoping, um, what is NEPA, and all those important topics. And so we're continuing our conversation with some experts um, who, who we've had on the show in the past. Um, with the Environmental Law Institute. Um, welcome back, Amy Reed, staff attorney with the Environmental Law Institute. And welcome for your first time um, to Delta Dispatches, Stephanie Ayler, public interest law fellow with the Environmental Law Institute.
4: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: So, Can you believe, you know, it was not long ago that you were on episode 20, Amy, and here we are. I don't even want to pretend to know what count we're at, but we made, you probably never thought we'd make it this far. No one ever did. We're still here.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It is impressive. It is
0: impressive. Awesome. Well, um, how have you all been managing over the last few months?
4: We're good. Um, Everyone at ELA is working remotely. Um, A lot of folks have gone back to their, you know, hometowns, um, but we we do manage to see each other on Zoom quite a lot. Um, And I personally, I actually just came back from maternity leave, so I have a newborn. So my quarantine has been uh, pretty fun, actually.
1: So Amy's changed a name, had a baby since, yeah. been, since our last episode, really haven't accomplished that much since no <laughs> but I'm glad you have. So Stephanie, how about you?
5: I'm doing okay as well. Um, been working from home for the past few months uh, and recently just moved back to California to be with family. So doing okay and thankful to be healthy at this time.
0: Great. Well, we're glad to hear you're both doing well. Um, Amy, I know, you know, ELI is um, based, I believe, in D.C., but you all do a lot of work in the Gulf. Um, So tell us a little bit, you know, for folks who may have not caught the prior show about the Environmental Law Institute and and your own background.
4: Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, to begin with, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the Institute, which we call ELI. Uh, We are a nonprofit organization based, as you said, in Washington, D.C., uh, though we do have folks that work. Um, all around the country. And while the word law is in our name and many of us are lawyers, including Stephanie and me, we don't do many of the things that people typically associate with lawyering. So we don't litigate or lobby and we don't represent clients. We're more focused on research and education. And so you can think of us as sort of a hybrid between a consultant for governments and NGOs, a think tank that tackles emerging law and policy issues and an educational organization for other lawyers and for communities. And so I've been with ELI since 2012. I actually started out there as a legal intern, and now I'm a staff attorney. Um, And I spent a lot of that time working on ocean and coastal issues, including a big focus on the Gulf of Mexico. And I'll let Stephanie tell you a little bit about her.
5: Yeah, so I started with ELI just almost a year ago as the public interest law fellow. And I've had the opportunity to work with our Gulf of Mexico team for much of that time. Uh, focusing primarily on adaptive management and coastal restoration projects and NEPA-related issues like public participation. Uh, outside of the Gulf team, I've worked on projects related to endangered species, fisheries, food waste, and more.
0: Awesome. Well, we have the right people on the show today to help talk us through a somewhat complex process, but we're going to, you know, kind of make it a little bit easier for everyone. So, um, Amy, tell us a little bit about um, some of the work that ELI has been doing specifically in Louisiana as it relates to coastal issues and otherwise.
4: Sure. So we've been working in the Gulf region focused on the restoration and recovery processes that were put in place after the BP oil disaster uh, for almost the full 10 years now since this bill. And in that time, we've worked to provide materials and information that explain what's going on and how folks can participate in the processes. Um, And right now, we're working to support effective restoration in Louisiana by studying issues like adaptive management um, of these large-scale restoration projects like the sediment diversion that we're talking about today. Um, And then always by supporting the engagement of local organizations, local governments, and communities in Louisiana restoration through ways like developing resources and holding events and
0: coming on podcasts. Awesome. Well, I have to say the um, fact sheets that you all put out about um, the BP settlement dollars and kind of how those are being distributed are just so helpful. Um, You know, it's sometimes hard to think about all the different buckets and funding sources and funding streams. And, um, you know, ELI is my go-to source when I'm like, I need to know just like the basics of of how this funding works. So um, thank you for that. Um, So I don't know let's let's dive right into scoping. Um, so we, we chatted a little bit with um, you know Brad and Jeff from the Army Corps in the prior segment about Mid-Breton and the scoping process and, and kind of the Corps' role in that. Um, but let's kind of like take a step back again and, and just what does scoping even mean? <laughs>
4: that's a great question. Um, and to answer it, you're right. I think we need to take a step back and explain how scoping fits into this bigger process that's going on right now on the coast. Uh, So, CPRA is proposing to build this big project, the Mid-Sediment Diversion Project, and they can't just go ahead and start building because they need different permits and permissions and to consult with all these agencies, and as uh, Brad and Jeff probably explained, one of those agencies is the Corps. Uh, So CPRA has applied to the Corps for permits and permissions to move forward with this project, and now the Corps has to make this big decision, do we grant this permit and give CPRA permission to start building this project? And in order to help them make that decision, uh, the Corps will prepare this very long and detailed document called an EIS.
1: So, so Stephanie, can you help us in that kind of acronym soup of what's, what does EIS stand for and why do we need it?
5: Yeah, so the EIS stands for Environmental Impact Statement. For a big project like this diversion, an EIS is required under a federal environmental law called NEPA, or the National Environmental Policy Act. The EIS will help the Corps decide whether it's going to issue the permits and permissions that CPRA is asking for, and it should also help other government agencies who are going to have to make decisions on this project as well. So thinking about this EIS that they're going to prepare, there are several steps that are required to be taken in the process of preparing it. And one of the earliest steps is a process called scoping. So this is when the government determines the range, or as it calls it, the scope, which is where the name comes from, of the different issues that will be covered in the EIS. And as part of that, it reaches out to the public and other agencies for input about what should go into the environmental impact statement and what potential impacts of the project get examined. So scoping is this opportunity very, very early on to give input into the EIS document before it's even drafted. So it's a really important opportunity for the public, especially to participate in this EIS process that's ultimately going to inform the core's permitting decision.
1: So impacts, Amy, That that's not always negative. I mean, obviously, in life, things can have positive impacts mm-hmm. or negative impacts or impacts that just kind of turn out to be neutral, right? So impacts are not always negative.
4: Right. I think... Um, it- you can have a negative connotation sometimes, but that's absolutely right. They can be positive or negative. And we need to keep in mind that the same impact might be perceived as a good thing by one person and a negative thing by another person. So, And the idea of an impact is actually pretty broad. And um, there are lots of kinds of impacts that the core will be thinking about um, as they consider what to include in scoping and in the EIS. Do you want me to talk a little bit more about the types of impacts that they look at?
0: Sure. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. our listeners would like to hear that.
4: Okay, great. So under the NEPA law, the agencies required to look at impacts on the quote human environment, but they use a really broad definition of environment. And so what that means is that not only impacts on what we might think of as traditional environmental resources like our air and water and plants and fish and wildlife um, are covered, but it also covers other kinds of impacts that a proposed action like this project could have on us, on humans. So these could be health impacts, economic impacts, effects on special historic places or cultural resources. Um, So for example, you know, you might want them to study impacts on your own local business or whether your property value or your insurance costs are going to go up and down, or even something like how the traffic patterns will be affected during the construction period for a project. Um, And also keep in mind that impacts can be direct or indirect. So during scoping, folks can ask about how one thing will lead to another and then affect a different resource, and they'll even be looking at what are called cumulative impacts or how the impacts of this action will combine with all the other activities happening on the coast to affect the environment. So all
0: of these types of things are fair
4: game uh, to come up in the scoping
0: process. That's really helpful, um, and and one of the things that they're looking at, too, is kind of an, the alternatives is through this process, right? So... Um, One alternative is actually constructing and and kind of moving forward with the project. But talk us through what alternatives mean as it relates to the environmental impact statement and what are some alternatives that the core might be looking at as part of this process?
4: Yeah, so in an EIS, uh, an alternative action is a different way that the applicant, so in this case CPRA, might be able to meet what's called the purpose and need of the proposed project. Um, an alternative can be a very different way of accomplishing the overall goal of a project or it could just be a slightly tweaked way. So maybe changing the location a little or making changes to how the project will be operated or, you know, what, what time of year it'll be operated, things like that. Um, and the agency actually also has to include taking no action as one of its alternatives. So the IS will also evaluate the environmental consequences of taking no action, just standing back and doing nothing. And as far as what alternatives they have in mind for this one, I can't I can't say, but usually by the time of the scoping meetings, they do have a few ideas um, of alternatives in mind that they plan to study in the IS. But scoping is really the only real chance for the public to offer their own ideas and information about other alternatives uh, that might meet the same purpose and need. So that's one of the reasons scoping is so important.
1: So Amy, um, or maybe this is a better question for Stephanie. When uh, we talked about with our core friends yesterday about um, the meetings that they're going to have and even after the meetings where they can submit questions, but also comments, right? Do they have to respond to people's comments, concerns, and suggestions? Can you tell us about that feedback process?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So, The comments, concerns, and suggestions raised at the virtual scoping meetings may be answered during the question and answer sessions during those meetings, but those questions and responses will not be included in the official project record. Regarding whether the agency has to respond to official scoping comments, it depends. So NEPA requires that agencies consider all reasonable alternatives, so if your comment proposes a reasonable alternative that the agency is not already evaluating, it must consider that. Uh, Comments regarding impacts and other considerations are typically evaluated by the agency and considered for inclusion in the EIS.
1: So, so, like community members can, uh, uh, Stephanie, as a follow-up, community members can provide input, but but also organizations or community groups, agencies, right? Like who gets to provide input?
5: Yeah, so all interested parties can provide input, which really encompasses anyone who has ideas or suggestions for the project. Uh, This typically includes affected federal, state, and local agencies, tribes, the applicant, so in this case, CPRA, and of course, affected members of the public.
0: So let's talk, shift a little bit. I mean, we're kind of in, um, you know, times that we, none of us had, would have expected maybe a few months ago, um, and the process and the core have kind of shifted how they're going about doing scoping as a result. So tell us about what the core is doing as it relates to um, our new kind of COVID world and, and, and how they're handling the scoping process um, going forward in, in response.
5: Yeah, so while scoping meetings are generally in-person events, the Mid-Breton meetings will be held virtually due to health threats posed by hosting public gatherings during the ongoing pandemic. But this is not the first public meeting to be held virtually. Many agencies and offices have been testing out different approaches for holding these meetings remotely since March. So there are some examples of how this can be done effectively. Uh, The Army Corps for the Mid-Breton Project will be holding three hour-and-a-half-long meetings on July 14th, 15th, and 16th, one each in the morning, afternoon, and evening. And folks will be able to access the meetings online via the WebEx platform or via telephone. And each meeting will begin with roughly 30 minutes. Of recorded presentations from both CPRA and the Army Corps, describing the project and the NEPA process, and these presentations are already available on YouTube if folks would like to watch them in advance. Uh, and then, following the presentations, there will be an hour-long question and answer session. And questions for the Q&A session can be submitted in advance of the meeting via the Corps' project webpage or during the meeting through the chat box on Webex. So folks who are calling into the meeting will have to submit questions via the project webpage. page. Um, but ultimately, this question and answer session provides an opportunity for interested parties to ask questions about the project that may help them shape their scope and comments but it's important to note that questions or comments raised during the virtual scoping meetings are not considered official scoping comments. Instead, those official comments must be submitted separately via the project webpage, mail, email, or phone.
0: That's really helpful to know. Um, you know, both about the virtual meetings, the fact that you can ask questions or comments in them, but those do not count as your official scoping comments and how to actually give those official scoping comments. So we have that information linked on our website, we'll link to it on this show, as well as the project page on the Army Corps website where you can access um, you know, how to give uh, comments, you know, how to attend the virtual meetings, how to see the recordings and all the other resources that the Corps has put, put forward. So um, I guess it's important to note, Stephanie, tell us about, okay, I, I say I can't go to the meeting next week or watch it, um, I can still give my comment. When does the comment period extend to And, um, yeah, just make sure folks know, uh, you know, how long they have to give comments.
5: Yeah, so comments can be submitted at any time between now and August 16th. Uh, Again, they can be submitted via the comment form on the project webpage or by mail, by email, or by phone. And more information about how to submit these comments, uh, through each of those channels is available on the course project webpage, and then also if you're not able to attend the meetings, each of them will be recorded and posted to the project webpage. So, if you're unable to attend, or if you just want to watch them again, they should be available shortly after the meetings are held.
1: So, I, I just have a, a question I want to ask Amy. So, um, Amy, can you can you like what? What specifically, well, without being specific, right, should I discuss in my comments, should I talk about project ideas that I have or impacts that I'm concerned about, um, things I would rather them consider instead, yeah. including like, you know, what if I'm worried about a future without action? So if you could help me a little bit about what my comments should, should look like.
4: Yeah, so all of those things you mentioned actually are fair game for a scoping comment. Um, a scoping comment is a little different than the comments that folks um, on the coast are typically used to making at public meetings, which are sort of more like in in favor or in opposition maybe of a project or a proposed decision. Scoping is a little different. The scoping period is your best chance to influence two key aspects of the EIS process. Number one is the list of the environmental impacts and issues that gets included in the discussion and number two is the range of alternative actions that get considered by the agency Uh, so if you have questions about how the project will impact the environment and your community uh, frame that as a question about impacts and if you have ideas about how the project could be tweaked or approached a little differently frame that as a question or a request to study a different alternative but those are the two broad categories you should be focusing on in your scoping comments
0: that's helpful, and, and maybe you know think of it like Jeopardy. Please make sure you're framing your answer in the form <laughs> of a question, right? So, um, so what are you know what do you foresee as some of the most common questions on the issue, Amy, if, if you had to say?
4: Oh, on the issue, the mid-retin issue, or
0: on on, just, uh, on, okay. on the project, yeah, or, or as part of a scoping project or process more broadly. Like, what are some common questions that might come up?
4: Well, I get a lot of questions because we're more the on the procedural side at ELI about why it's important to participate in this moment during scoping, right? And I always tell people what one of my colleagues who's been a NEPA expert for like 30 years tells me, which is that scoping is truly the public's best shot at influencing the contents of the EIS and therefore the proposed project. So because by the time you get to the draft EIS stage, which is the next official step of the EIS process, the agency has basically decided what alternatives they're going to evaluate and which impacts they're going to discuss. And it's not impossible that you could raise a new issue at that point between the draft and the final versions, but there is a much better shot at getting your voice heard and your issue considered if you participate at the beginning during the scoping phase.
0: Awesome. Well, this is such great um, information. And and thank you both for helping to take this process, which can seem a little overwhelming or or kind of um, hard to grasp, and really breaking it down for us. So I will mention that we, again, have our webpage. um, that has a lot of resources, including a, a great fact sheet that Environmental Law Institute um, put together um, on NEPA and scoping. So please access that, as well as you know, opportunities and information for how you can give comments. So we have a little tradition on Delta Dispatches. I don't know if you remember Amy from our, our last <laughs> show, but okay, we like to ask a fun question, and I have a fun question for each of you um, that it's not related to you know scoping at all, but. <laughs> I'm yeah, curious, <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite legal movie? Ah,
5: good question,
4: Zach. <laughs> that is a good question. Um, honestly, this is so cliche, but Aaron Brockovich has always been uh, close to my heart. Um, but I also recently watched The Lincoln Lawyer with my husband, and we enjoyed that too. So.
5: Very nice. Yeah, I right? have to agree. Aaron Brokovich is a great one especially for environmental lawyers
0: awesome well that that, i love aaron brockovich i'll have to check out the lincoln lawyer because i haven't seen it and I'll, i'll just say that legal dramas are like obviously one of my favorite genres like the Pelican brief, you know, all of those, I could just like binge watch. Um, So maybe I'll, maybe I'll end up doing that this weekend. You've inspired me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, before we go, I want to make sure folks know where they can go to get more information about um, Environmental Law Institute, um, support your work, et cetera. So what's your website and where can people go to get more information about ELI and all the great work you do?
4: Yeah, thanks. Um, All of our Gulf of Mexico restoration materials and resources are available at the website www.eli-ocean.org slash gulf. But for more information about ELI's work generally, folks can visit just www.eli.org.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amy Reed and Stephanie Ayler with the Environmental Law Institute. Um, we will stay in touch throughout this process and appreciate your coming on again to help us and our listeners better understand scoping. So, hopefully, this has been a really good and informative uh, show for you all. You know, really wonderful to have folks from the core on at the first part of the show, and then our friends at Environmental Law Institute on um, in the second part. So. We'll be sure to link to a lot of the great resources that we've mentioned throughout this episode and hope you can engage yourself in the mid breton scoping process to ask some really important questions about um, how this project should move forward. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with another episode of Delta Dispatches soon.
1: Bye, y'all.